0: Ah, that's the hero of the British people who, through his leadership, did so much. Or maybe to Frenchmen, Napoleon. I couldn't think of any greater or more outstanding. Have they ever had a great leader since Napoleon? Uh, he certainly would awaken the uh, attracted uh, attention of French people. To Americans, George Washington the one who is the founding father of the Confederation. Moses was such an outstanding figure, and the call of the gospel, the call of the New Testament contract with God was no longer with Moses, but with Christ through his Son, Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. And again, we're in the book of Hebrews and looking at chapter 12, the journey from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. Let me read to you of the things that we will find in the heavenly city. But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all the earth, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel. What a list! And, of course, we are not going back to Mount Sinai. We are not going back to the law. We are going to Mount Zion to glory. The hope of the Christian is pressing forward, and in heaven we will find all of these things that are in store for the child of God. I trust that you're a Christian today, that you have asked the Lord to be your Lord and Savior, and I invite you to join with us here week by week, day by day, as we let the Bible speak and encourage God's people to press on in the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a living Savior, he is exalted, and he's coming again, and he's coming to take us home to live with himself. He promises, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. That's John chapter 14. So, thank you for being a part of the program today. Join us again, of course, each day, and take down the details and give me a call or send me an email just to let me know you're listening in. Listen now to the message. So, we move to the prospect of our gospel hope. It calls us to cleave to Christ. We're going to go to verse 22, and we're going to see all of these Heavenly things that we're called to, but ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now it's difficult to say that one. Is it Z Z or is it S Zion? It's the same place. I don't know why it's with an S here in this place, but it's the same city, and it's the same glorious place, Mount Zion. Mount Zion in the city of David in Jerusalem was the highest point of the city, the highest peak of the city. And of course, David conquered that. It became known as the city of David. And we are come unto Mount Zion, to the very highest and the holiest uh, presence of God. It's called here the city of the living God. Now, to get through this passage tonight, there are seven heavenly things that are listed in verses 22 right down to verse 24. I want to list those. I want us to look at what we have in Christ, what we have as New Testament people leaving Moses, leaving Sinai, and coming entering into the gospel hope at Mount Zion. So the first thing, we have the prospect of the heavenly Jerusalem. It's called the city of the living God, and it's called the heavenly Jerusalem, our eternal home, described in the book of Revelation as the place of glory and the place of peace. Now, if you're a Christian, you're already there. You've arrived if ye be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. As a Christian, you are already there. You're saved, and you're sure of it. You have this blessed assurance. And so, just as the train conductor would say to the passenger, hey, waken up, you've arrived at your destination. We who are called to preach the gospel would say to you tonight, your faith is in the Lord Jesus. You have arrived. You have come to faith, to all the hope and all the grace that is in the Lord Jesus. Now, also, you'll notice that number two, we'll go down these seven things here, number two, and to an innumerable company of angels. And so, in heaven around the throne, there is gathered the multitudes of angels, called here as innumerable. You can't count them. They are beyond calculation, and they are ministering angels night and day. They minister to the Lord. They minister to the saints, because they minister to God's people the things of their redemption even though they themselves have never been redeemed. That is their ministry. You'll see, thirdly, there is the prospect of believers in heaven. Verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. Now, you remember the lesson of Esau? He was the firstborn, but he sold his birthright. The firstborn are those who get the inheritance. Every believer is a firstborn. In the Old Testament, there was a separate list for all the firstborn. They were recorded separately. Every Christian is a firstborn. We are heirs. We are joint heirs with our Lord Jesus. And we have this great prospect before us. Number four, again in verse 23, we are come to God as the judge of all. Now, think of that, entering into the presence of the judge. That's like the criminal who is taken out of jail. He's dragged into court. He's given the sentence, justified, and then he goes and has tea with the judge in his home. That's acceptance. And that's the hope that is set before God's people. We are come to God, the judge of all. And then number five, the spirits of just men made perfect. Mr. Lyons is there tonight. He died on Friday. He was glorified in spirit on Friday. past. Friday to come there will be a funeral for his body, but his spirit is with the Lord. The moment the Christian dies, we who are asleep in Jesus will instantly ascend into the presence of the Lord. To, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And in the presence of God, all the saints, Abraham Job, all the saints, certainly all that are listed here in Hebrews, all the believers that have ever believed in the gospel are around the throne, the spirits of just men made perfect, and they are enjoying the glory and the bliss of heaven in spirit form, waiting for the day of the resurrection. When another trumpet will sound, that will be a glorious trumpet for the saints, because on that day when the graves open and our bodies are brought forth in new form, there will be the reuniting of spirit and body, and we shall be forever then with the Lord. And so, this is the great prospect that we have. We are not come to Mount Sinai. We are come to Mount Zion. We've come to the place where we have all of these hopes and prospects of glory for the Christian. And then as we move down to verse 24, who else is there? Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And when we open our eyes in heaven, we will see our Lord, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. We will see him in body. We will see him in a glorified body. And we will worship him as the Lamb of God, our Redeemer and our Savior. And with full sense of his glory, we will praise him day and night. In heaven, we will have no need of the sun because the Lamb is the light thereof. We shall see the Lord in glory. And then also in this passage, the next, number six, the blood of sprinkling. Ah, the blood by which we are redeemed, that blood is in heaven. It's not lost. It is right there in glory. And we're told that it speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, I had to really ponder this one. What blood are we speaking about in the blood of Abel? There's two possibilities. You remember how he brought to God a, a, a lamb, a, a sacrifice to God There was the blood of the sacrifice. And he learned, although he was first generation, Adam's son, He learned the way to God and the way to worship was by the blood of the Lamb. But then there was also the blood of Abel that was shed in the field by his wicked brother Cain. That blood in the field cried out for vengeance, and the death sentence was upon Cain. That's the blood of Abel that cries for vengeance. It cries out for death to the murderer. But the blood of Jesus does not cry for vengeance. It cries peace. It cries salvation. And it cries blessing to those who find refuge in the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so, this is the wonderful prospect of the Christian. The blood is in heaven. The blood speaks for us. And when you feel guilty, when you feel that you've done the wrong, you can go to the Lord, and you can plead that speaking blood. You can plead its cleansing and its justifying work to make it right with God. And you don't have to carry the burden of guilt and the burden of sin, but take it to the Lord through the blood of Jesus that speaketh better things than that of Abel. And so this is the prospect. Why Sinai? Why listen to the terrors of the law when we have all of these benefits at Mount Zion? This is the hope of the New Covenant people, the New Testament people. Why would you cling to Moses? Why would you go back to the old Levitical ways? Why would you go back to circumcision? Why would you hanker after some nostalgia that was terror when you have every liberty in the Lord Jesus? This is the great argument of the apostle as he appeals to these Hebrews don't even think of going back. Press on looking unto Jesus and to the hope and the prospect that is yours in heaven. Now, he closes in verse 25, 26, referring to the voice that speaks from heaven. And, of course, that voice is the voice of God through his Son. Listen to verse 25. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, Oh, God's still speaking. That's good news. God was speaking in the Old Testament. God is still speaking in the New. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake, not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken. The Old Testament's gone. Sinai's gone. The way through Moses is gone. That's removed as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, the argument is, if the Israelites who rejected the voice of God at Sinai perished, and we know of those who sinned openly perished openly, if they under that system perished, how much more will you perish if you neglect the voice of God through his Son? Surely the judgment that will fall upon the person who rejects the voice of God through his Son is a greater judgment and greater wrath. And you'll see how the chapter ends, verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. God's nature has not changed. He is still the God who is terrible in holiness. But we have a better mediator, a better covenant arrangement. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. God hath in these last days spoken unto us through his Son. Built into that, there's a quote there from the book of Haggai, which talks about the Lord shaking the heavens, which uh, really alludes to the New Testament gospel. Uh, it is God shaking the nations uh, through the one who is uh, desired, the one who is the desire of nations. And so tonight we conclude, having looked at this chapter, that this is the apostle's final argument. He kept the strongest argument to the end. It's like trying to win the debate, and you say, well, there's this, and this, and this, and this, and then you keep the big unanswerable condition, and you bring it out, and you say, but here's the real big reason— and it must convince you. That's what we have here in this 12th chapter. And even if you don't grasp the minutiae of the details in the book of Hebrews, please understand this. Anybody who looks to Moses has no hope. It is those who look unto Jesus who have a sure hope. That's the bottom line of it all. And I trust tonight that your faith, your hope, is not in historical figures, human figures, but in the Lord Jesus, who was true man and an historical figure, but the Savior sent from heaven. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. This is Ian Golliher. What is biblical marriage? I never thought I would live in times when we would have to answer such an ABC question on marriage. Society is pushing agendas that force us to go back to basics and look again at the foundations for biblical marriage. I won't digress into the humanistic ideas that are based on evolutionary thinking. There can be no model at all for human relations if we are the product of chance over vast periods of time. Such a view leads to marshy ground of life spawning and life endlessly developing into something we don't know what. The one thing we need to observe is that across all species, male and female unions have been the only means of reproduction. Any departure from that clear dichotomy of male and female has caused species or subgroups to die out. Our understanding of biblical marriage must go back to God's creative work when He made man male and female. That is a clear statement on the Genesis record, and it is a fact known through the populations of the world. Mankind exists, lives, and procreates, as male and female. This is an historic fact, and it's a biological fact. Any divergence from this basic position either neglects the facts or fights against them. One of the marvels of human civilization is the almost perfect balance in the number of births of boys and girls. Some families may be blessed with all boys, and some families may be blessed with all girls. Not all families are blessed with two and two, one and one, or five and five. However, in any population around the world, there is the constant balance of male and female. The only interruption to this has been human intervention through family planning with favoritism for the birth of boys, meaning the abortion of girls. This creates an imbalance but it is one that is accountable through human interference and rebellion to the plan of God. This cohabitation of man and woman to produce children has been a vastly important issue in all societies. The only consistent model of marriage has been a contract between one man and one woman. This was God's providential work in creating Adam, and then creating Eve as his wife and helpmeet. God didn't make Adam a polygamist by giving him more wives than one. In God's work of creating the first parents, Adam was created first, and woman was given as a helpmeet to him. Their difference in biological makeup were dramatic and obvious. Adam could not produce offspring alone. He needed a wife with the biological ability to conceive and bear children. Scientists might weigh in here with the well established fact that each human person has 23 pairs of chromosomes. The 23rd pairing determines the sex, that is, the XY factor in determining male versus female. XX is for girl. And XY is for boy. This is a fixed law of creation built in by God as creator. He not only made one set of humans, he established an unchangeable perpetual law of procreation by requiring 46 chromosomes, which cannot be provided by female unions alone nor male unions alone. There was no other way for human life to procreate in order to fulfill its God's given mandate to multiply and replenish the earth. And that law of pairing chromosomes across genders applies to every generation. This model has been followed consistently throughout the ages. Yes, there have been perversions and horrible abuses of it, but nevertheless the model of one man and one woman in marriage union continues throughout the world, from nation to nation, and culture to culture. It is the model that is fought against, rebelled against, and mocked by many, but only because it is the model. Everything else is an experiment and is doomed to feel as a solid building block to any society. The Lord Jesus countenanced marriage between one man and one woman when he attended a wedding at Cain of Galilee and spoke of the permanence of marriage in underscoring the issue of divorce, which was abused in his generation. The apostle Paul built on the model of marriage between one man and one woman, as in creation of Adam and Eve, when he expounded on marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And he talks about, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one Flesh. This creation model laid the foundation for marriage unions between one man and one woman. But then there is another model to focus upon, a model that lifts this to an even higher order. The Apostle Paul alluded to it in this passage in Ephesians 5. It is the model of Christ and the church. Christ is the husband as Redeemer, Saviour, and the body of believers is the bride the Lamb's wife, bought by the blood of Christ. There is but one Savior and one church. In his infinite wisdom, God has modeled marriage between one man and one woman on the redemption plan of Christ as Savior of his church, even giving his life for her. The apostle went on to show that a husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That means sacrificial and pure love. The Bible is also very clear that every other sexual union outside of marriage between one man and one woman brings down the wrath of God. Adulterers and fornicators God will judge. Marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. Marriage between man and woman has God's blessing. It is God's plan in creation, procreation, raising of godly children, Marriage and the establishment of family is the building block of society. Marriage and the family is the first institution God ordained. Without it, humanity is doomed to misery, corruption, and the wrath of God. Bible passages to read on this is Genesis 1-3, to Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 7, and Ephesians chapter 5. Let us then rejoice in God's gift of marriage and pray to live up to the one model that God is pleased to bless.